Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am Diana Dor, one of the hosts of the channel. Today, we're really honored to have Professor Tao Jiang on the show to talk about his new book entitled Origins of Moral Political Philosophy in Early China, Contestation of Humaneness, Justice, and Personal Freedom published by the Oxford University Press in 2021. Uh, just a little about, about, about our guests. Uh, so Professor Zhang is a scholar of classical Chinese philosophy and Mahayana Buddhist philosophy. He is the author of this new book, of course, uh, Origins of Moral Political Philosophy in Early China, and the author of Context and Dialogue, Yogacara Buddhism and Modern Psychology on the Subliminal Mind, as well as the co-editor of The Reception and Rendition of Freud in China. Uh, Professor Zhang chairs the Department of Religion and directs the Center for Chinese Studies at Rutgers University, uh, New Brunswick in New Jersey. He's also the co-chair of the New Confucian Studies Seminar at Columbia University. Uh, Professor Zhang, welcome to the show. I'm really glad to have you here. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's such an honor uh, to have this opportunity to introduce my work to the audience of the New Books Network. Uh, I myself is a really avid listener to many of the podcasts produced by the network, um, and I really, really appreciate the amazing work you and other hosts have been doing promoting all of this uh, new scholarship to a broader audience. Uh, so I'm really honored to have this opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that really generous comment. Um, we really have a lot of listeners who are also the writers of, of the books that we have interviews on and, and the channel wouldn't be possible without listeners and academics like you. So thank you so much for that comment. Um, so let's begin our interview with a little bit of self-introduction first. Uh, so please say a few words about yourself and how you became interested in East Asian studies in general, but particularly in Chinese studies and Chinese philosophies. Um, so actually in grad school, um, my training was more in um, Mahayana Buddhist philosophy, in particular in this uh, Yogacara Buddhist school. Um, initially, I was going to work on early Chinese philosophy or preaching Chinese philosophy. But then thanks to the influence of my many, you know, my mentors and many grad school friends um, that I made, um, I ended up discovering the amazing world of Buddhism that I really knew very little about um, before grad school. So and I was so fascinated by Buddhist philosophy that I gave up on um, early Chinese philosophy and delving into Buddhist philosophy. So after going at it for several years, um, one of my mentors mentioned that if I really wanted to understand Buddhist philosophy, I really needed to study Yogacara Buddhism, or this in Chinese called Wei Shizong. This is a major uh, scholastic Mahayana Buddhist school, uh, which started in India and was transmitted to China. But interestingly, so none of my mentors were really specialized in Yogacara Buddhism, so I was pretty much on my own. And uh, the so I dive into it because I was really interested in Buddhist philosophy. Um, but very quickly, I got lost in this really vast ocean of uh, Yogacara scholasticism. And anybody who knows anything about Yogacara Buddhism or Buddhist philosophy in general would appreciate that point. 
but eventually, I, I think I found my footing on the a, a famous Chinese Yogacara text. It's called Cheng Wei Shi Lun. It's usually translated as the treatise on the establishing of the doctrine uh, of consciousness only. Uh, this was by probably the best-known monk in Chinese history, you know, Xuanzang, uh, who was in the uh, lived in the seventh century in you know Tang, China. Uh, he was also he was the main character in the famous Chinese novel Journey to the West, uh, which could depict a seventh-century pilgrim who traveled to India, studied with the Indian masters. Uh, there and took back with him many Buddhist texts, right back to to Tang China, so that he and his translation team really would translate into Chinese. So, so that was the text I ended up working on, and I was specifically working on a very important concept in in that text and in Yogacara Buddhism more generally. This is on the notion of storehouse consciousness. And then, then I wrote my dissertation and then revised uh, as the first book uh, that you mentioned that it's titled Context and Dialogue, Yogacara Buddhism and Modern Psychology on the Subliminal Mind, which basically is a discussion on the Yogacara notion of storehouse consciousness in Xuanzang's text and compared it with conceptions of the unconscious in Freud and Jung, right? So that, that's a very different kind of book from the book uh, that we're about to discuss. But then I, I, I always had a strong interest in pre-Buddhist Chinese philosophy, as I mentioned. I sort of gave that up um, because I was interested in Buddhist philosophy. But then since um, after I was tenured, so I was secured, I thought, okay, there was probably no better time to get back into this other interest of mine. And it was a major shift in my scholarship um, because most of my scholarship at that point had been on Buddhist philosophy. So it really took quite a bit of the time and effort to recalibrate my scholarly trajectory and my scholarly production. So that's how uh, I really got into this. Thank you for sharing that. It's, it's a fascinating journey for sure. And it's, it's, I can only imagine it's not easy to, uh, to study, to analyze all these texts right, from all these different bodies of traditions. Indeed, because they had nothing to do with each other. That's really what's interesting. It's like, I cannot build on each other. That, that's, that's what makes this really challenging. And chronologically, right, it's, it's such a big span. <laughs> Exactly, exactly, exactly. From medieval Chinese texts, but way back into the the pre, you know, into the earlier texts. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, like this book, um, all of the thinkers that we're dealing with were all from the BC era, so um, very ancient. Uh, before we dig into the book, um, why don't you tell us a little bit about how this book project came to be? Um, I know in our kind of casual conversation, you, you mentioned that it took more than a decade to um, complete this uh, huge project. So, so tell us a little bit more about that. Right. So it actually didn't start out this way, right? I didn't sort of purposely start out to write a book, um, you know, all of early Chinese philosophers. I originally, I just wanted to do a book on Zhuangzi's philosophy. This is about um, one and a half decade ago. Uh, but then when I was doing research and, and formulating this Zhuangzi's project of personal freedom, I thought, okay, I needed to account for the Confucian and the Moist ideas, which was roundly critiqued and ridiculed by Zhuangzi and the Zhuangists. But then very quickly, I realized, okay, I didn't 
really fully understand and appreciate um, the Confucian and the Moist project, which were the mainstream moral political project during the Warren States period. This was from the early fifth century to uh, the late third uh, century BCE, around two hundred fifty year period. So yeah, I was I knew I was familiar with the basic concepts, right? The standard narrative and interpretive tropes, uh, various points of disputations. But I don't think I really knew um, what normative values that were motivating those thinkers and those texts and why those values were important to them. So you know, in that regard, it only seemed natural for me to expand my study to then include all of these thinkers during the early China period, the classical period, which then eventually evolved into this monograph 15 years later, right? So, so that's, a, that's a very um, sort of a long journey. Otherwise, I really wasn't ambitious enough to do this project. It, sort of, uh, it, it kind of took on a dynamic of its own. And so in this book, I wanted to re- retell a story about this foundational period of Chinese philosophy. Anybody who has any cursory knowledge of Chinese philosophy or you know, Asian philosophy or East Asian philosophy know how really how important uh, preaching early Chinese philosophy is. And, and also, um, it took me a very, very long time to feel really comfortable uh, to present my interpretation in this kind of sweeping way. So that, that's also why it took so long. Um, and I want to reorient the scholarly discussion on classical Chinese philosophy towards a more normative kind of dimension. So I wanted to focus on the values, the normative entailment um, that are valorized in these texts. So to give you an example, what this means is that, you know, so for example, A.C. Graham, you know, most famous for his book, Disputers of the Tao, right? A uh, very big giant uh, in the field of Chinese philosophy, who I really admire. He, for example, characterizes the Zhuangzi this way. He says, um, the book is in fact an anthology of writing with philosophies justifying withdrawal in to private life, unquote. This is from A.C. Graham from the Disputers of the Tao. Now, this is fine. This is this is perfectly uh, fine interpretation, um, especially in helping us understand the sort of the uh, these historical figures. But I think um, characterize it that way, it it can kind of underappreciate the the normative dimensions of the Zhuangzi, which I characterize as the idea of personal freedom, even in their appreciation and withdrawn to private life, that's their way of expressing the uh, sort of personal freedom. So that's why I wanted to sort of shift the discussion of the early texts in this direction. And also, the, you know, the why we added the, uh, the, the origin story is always very important. And, and we know the, 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 you know, the founding story of America, right? The, you know, the, the genesis story, the, the founding of any major political entity, religious organizations, and so forth. These are really important personally and in terms of collectively, socially, right, or spiritually. So the story of early China and classical philosophers that 
you know, that really shaped the identity of what it means to be Chinese. So that's that's why it's also really important to study this uh, period and to study its normative uh, orientations in better appreciating how the, uh, the how the Chinese worldviews and the Chinese identity have been shaped uh, through the uh, millennia. Yeah, indeed, your your book definitely does that. And uh, as somebody who works, for example, on the 20th century, a very modern period, I see a lot of really relevant discussions in your book, although you're dealing with all these thinkers from, you know, two millenniums ago, I'm still very much relevant for sure. Um, and in the introduction of your book, you explain several issues um, facing the study of Chinese philosophy, especially in the Western Academy, which I found to be really, really fascinating to read. Um, so some of these issues are, for example, the sinological challenge, uh, the problems of authorship when it comes to Chinese philosophical texts, um, and also the disciplinary fault lines between sinology and philosophy that the study of Chinese philosophy finds itself in, and also even institutional slash structural racism in Western academia. Uh, Please elaborate on these issues facing the study of Chinese philosophy a bit more for us. What is really at stake here? And and what is the approach you take in this book uh, in response to these challenges? Thank you for that question. So the uh... Chinese philosophy uh, within the Western ac- uh, academia is kind of situated in a very precarious uh, um, location. So it's situated between Sinology um, and uh, Western philosophy, Sinology being the study of the pre-modern Chinese text through historical and uh, philological lens. Um, and the, the Chinese philosophers, because of the lack of institutional support, as well as um, lots of other uh, kinds of methodological challenges, um, it faces um, very many difficulties. So my introduction as a way to clear, almost to, to clear the, the, the ground a little, is to meant to sort of provide a way to defend the, the legitimacy of Chinese philosophy within the uh, Western Academy and to provide a methodology to say, well, this is actually a valid and legitimate way to approach uh, early Chinese texts philosophically, not just historically, right? So this was a, a methodological and sociological reflection on the challenges of doing Chinese philosophy within Western uh, academia. And I, I had a focus on the challenges coming from Sinology. And there has also been a lot of discussion on the, the challenge to Chinese philosophy uh, coming primarily from Western um, philosophy. But you know, the focus of my uh, introduction is primarily from um, Western Sinology. So I, my key argument is this, that scholars, when we engage uh, in scholarly inquiries, we're actually engaged in the construction of scholarly objects, right? And these are guided by our respective disciplinary norms and practices. So in other words, um, when, we, um, when we, act- we actively construct the very object we study, instead of simply investigating something that's given, 
And this is especially the case when we're dealing with immaterial artifacts of historical and uh, cultural significance. And in so doing, um, the disturbing norms and practices and institutional arrangements, they all play very important and often decisive roles in these kinds of constructive uh, endeavors in such a way that scholars of different disciplines, they often sort of talk past each other because our scholarly objects are very seldom aligned with each other. So um, let me explain what this means. Um, When we do sort of, when we approach an early text, like let's say the Analects or the Zhuangzi, you know, or Laozi, it's not, you know, the first, we would just pick up and read and see, try to figure out what this means and what the text says. And um, and then, you know, we might be thinking, okay, we're just, we whoever is reading the text, we're dealing with the same object. But what I'm, the case, what I'm trying to make is that not quite, yes, there's clearly overlaps, but not quite. It depends on our kinds of training, the kind of methodology that we adopt when we when we approach the text, the kind of questions that we carry with us, um, the and 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 those tend to shape the way that we as scholars engage with the text. So it's it's not simply about what the text says; it's also about why the text says uh, those things, and uh, especially when there's tensions or conflict. And and of course, there's always going to be tensions and inconsistencies, and um, and and you can analyze it in so many uh, different ways, right? You can problematize it in many many different fashions. Um, but the what what I wanted to emphasize is that if you're a philosopher. Or if you are a historian um, or you're a sinologist, you approach these texts um, very differently. So the sinologist tends to be much more interested in what I call the the sort of you know I I, I didn't put this uh, in the book, but I'm just the more I think about it, I just call this the back end of the text, like how the how the text was produced, how it put together, how it was redacted, transmission history, blah blah blah. So those kind of questions, right? You know, so it's how the you know the in operating in the sort of the obscurity of history. So that's I call that the back end. You know, again, that's not in the book. And while philosophers tend to be more interested in kind of the front end of the text, it's sort of it's, you know what's how it's presented and the kind of the world that's the very creation of the text, the kind of values that's reflected in the text. Um, and so then, how those questions are formulated tends to track our professional training and uh, disciplinary norms. So that was the the focus of the introduction. And I also, in the introduction, I also give a quick snapshot of uh, two very famous cases about the challenges facing Chinese philosophy coming from Western philosophers. And there, um, the issue, um, it might have started with the question of like, what is philosophy, right? It's the boundary issue of, you know, what's the definition of philosophy, how it should be applied, or whether that's applicable to Chinese philosophy. But then the question recently, at least within recent decades, has been increasing about more charged issues like what is China and what is West? What is Chinese and what is Western? So these are no longer the, in the kind of strictly scholarly or intellectual. So that's and the political undertone is, is very, very clear. So that's what I wanted to do. So in order to solve the kind of problem that I am delineated coming from the sinologist, um, I propose that 
um, the scholars of Chinese philosophy are very clear about our own scholarly objects. So I postulate that as scholars of Chinese philosophy, we're dealing with inherited text instead of original text. Original text is dealt with by sinologists, historians. So uh, philosophers deal with inherited text, the text that's transmitted through history. And then we construct textual authors. We're not necessarily dealing with the historical author, which is the prerogative of the historians and of sinologists. And we also uh, interpret those texts based upon the a, a constructed textual intent uh, based upon that textual author instead of dealing with authorial intent. And it's, it's debatable whether we can even uh, treat authorial intent as a legitimate scholarly inquiry because you know it's that's in the you know sort of private domain of a subject uh, subjective person yeah thank you for that uh, really detailed explanation just to sort of make it clear all of the authors that we'll be talking about um, in the next I guess 40 50 minutes uh, we will be referring to them right like you said as the textual authors of certain ideas and, and, and texts in, indeed indeed yes yeah so we're not necessarily talking about the sort of the way that what when historians talk about let's say Confucius um, the author of the Analects, or at least the, that's the, the text being attributed to. But then in that, uh, in that attribution, we would also include um, many of Confucius' close disciples as recorded in the Analects, right? So, so, be, so the Confucius, in that sense, becomes a sort of shorthand for early Confucians as whose uh, you know, discussions are recorded or constructed and contained in the Analects. And if you know, so that and there, that's a that's a very important decision and interpreted decision to make. Yeah, for sure. And I guess as a Buddhist study scholars, you you, you must be also familiar with the Buddha Vachana problem. So that's a uh, oh yeah, very, oh yeah, there, very yeah, similar. Yeah. yeah, this is the kind of question that that's across discipline, absolutely, and across different different areas, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, and um, as the title of your book suggests, your book actually centers on three particular and rather prevalent ideas uh, to, quote, remap the intellectual landscape of classical Chinese philosophy and to recast the narrative of its origins, unquote. Um, and these three ideas are humaneness, justice, and personal freedom. Um, so tell us a little bit about uh, why did you choose these three particular ideas for the organizing frameworks of the book? And what do these three ideas tell us specifically about the formations of moral political philosophy in early China? Right. So because I wanted to uh, retell the narrative of this foundational period of Chinese philosophy, so I, I needed to come up with a much more schematic uh, arrangement um, that can encapsulate the uh, the main, the dominant discourse, and while taking care of uh, those sort of what I consider to be outliers. So I start with the observation that um, early Chinese thinkers, beginning with Confucius, um, were all dealing with a sort of deepening crisis when an established moral political order was crumbling right in front of their eyes. And that crumbling would get worse and worse as time uh, went on. And they were all trying to come up with ways to reformulate and reconceptualize, to reimagine a really a new order, right? So when reading those texts philosophically, I really came to appreciate the 
you know, many of these shared struggles and shared efforts in the way that they cross-reference each other. They, you know, they, they, they share the kind of vocabularies and images and um, uh, allegories and, and, so, and, and historical references and, and so on and so forth. Um, and which that they were doing in dealing with the crisis during the Warring States period. So, um, so when I was writing this book, I wanted to understand the uh, this, the origin of moral political philosophy in early China from this broad sweeping uh, kind of fashion. So my main interest is really the uh, nature of major philosophical projects and their you know intellectual parameters and their changing normative boundaries and that are quite often transgressed and 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 uh, you know um, and violated and they're also the guiding values and those values that also changes that motivates early chinese uh, philosophers uh, who grapple with a radically changing world there's also there's some interesting sort of resonance with what's going on right now because a lot of you know we, we can see that it's there some of the uh, the what we used to take for granted a certain kind of moral political norm are starting to be you know to be challenged and start to to really deteriorate and, and so there's it's an interesting uh sort of um, resonance in that regard so uh, when i was um, telling the story i basically make three key points the first is that the central intellectual challenge during this uh, period uh, was how to negotiate the relationship between the personal dimension, the familial dimension, and the political dimensions uh, when philosophers were uh, reconceptualizing a new social and moral political order. And sometimes this tension is also understood in the relationship between the private and the public, the si and the gong. And, and these philosophers, they were really offering a just amazingly uh, just you know array of competing visions for this order and the second point is that the competing vision uh, can be understood as a contestation between what i call impartialist justice and partialist humaneness as the guiding norms of this new order so we have the uh, the confucians the moist I know some of these categories are problematic uh, from certain perspective, but but I'm I'm sticking with the Confucians and the Moist in the book. But then I'm not using the uh, the sort of the, the more problematic category of the of the 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 Taoist. So I I, I divide them into the Laoist and the Zhuangist. Uh, so the the mainstream being the Confucians, the Moist, the Laoist, and the so-called Fa Jia thinker, usually translated as the Legalist. Now they were the sort of the mainstream thinkers. And their project was the mainstream moral political pro you know, project. And the third point is that Zhuangzi and the Zhuangists, they were, I thought, I think that they were really the outliers of this mainstream uh, moral political debate. And the Zhuangzi and the Zhuangists, they rejected this parameter of what I char characterize as humaneness and justice in the mainstream debate. And they instead uh, represented a long voice advocating personal freedom. So they are a long voice for personal freedom. I mean, the Johnson. For them, the mainstream debate is, you know, intellectually banal and it's misguided and it's actually dangerous. So the uh, the, uh, the so that's the three major claim that the book is making. And one more point that I thought would be really worth emphasizing that that I uh, sort of uh, that's really 
um, clear, should be clear from the book is that there's a very important overall context for this uh, classical period is that all of these efforts were taking place within an evolving understanding of heaven and its relationship with humans. And so the very understanding of what is heaven and how is heaven related to the human realm was also changing. And that would have very major consequences in the way in setting up the parameters of these uh, moral political uh, debates and discourse. So uh, let me just brief briefly elaborate on what I mean by humaneness and justice. So humaneness, I refer to as the moral norm that is agent and recipient relative. In other words, uh, it reflect our inclination to be partial to the, towards those who are close to us, especially our family and kin members, right? So humaneness is partialist. And on the other hand, justice, this is the moral norm that is agent recipient neutral. This refers to our exercise of impartial judgment on the merits of person and state of affairs, especially uh, in terms of the articulated and publicized standards and codes, regardless of their relationship to us, to the adjudicating agent. And so this is uh, injustice. I mean, justice is impartial as opposed to humaneness that is partial. So humaneness, in this sense, is understood in relational terms, and justice is non-relational by contrast. So because of this relational uh, nature of humaneness, the agent and recipient in, the, in that relationship, they cannot be switched, and they cannot be substituted. So within family, father and son, husband and wife, and, and this is not, you cannot replace or substitute one, right? In terms of justice, which operates more within the political domain, the agent and recipient, they're switchable and substitutable. So that's it's not relational in that, in the humanist sense of the term. And so their distinction, I think, in the classical Chinese debate, it really has to do with whether or not differential treatment um, uh, should be accorded to family members and kin members. Um, and if so, on what ground? When the treatment, when you know, when the the family member is at fault. So should should the family member get special treatment, um, special from different from your, the treatment of uh, of a stranger? And if so, why? On what ground can it be justified? So then, in that regard, from the perspective of humaneness, the impartialist justice can be inhumane because you know it flattens the our relationship and discard, disregards the critical differentiation among those relationships uh, that really is constitutive of who we are as humans. But then on, from the perspective of justice, humanness can be unfair because it favors those recipients who are close to the adjudicating agents of the state. And it breeds uh, nepotism in politics under the pretense of humanness. And one last word about uh, personal freedom, which characterize uh, the Drones' worldview and their approach to more political freedom, uh, or in the Drones' approach to the more political project, is that this the personal freedom really refers to the appreciation and the cultivation of personal space. Um, and within that space, uh, we can all be left alone and enjoy the company of like-minded friends and family um, without being entangled in this broader social political world. So that that's what makes the strong, strongest major outlier in the early um, philosophical landscape.
sorry, that that was that was a bit long. Oh no worries. That was a that was a really really helpful answer. And I find um, the organizing framework of the three ideas: humaneness, justice, and personal freedom, really really helpful for um, navigating right all these very complex uh, philosophies, as we'll see in the following chapters. Each philosophy uh, or philosophical tradition will have to negotiate between the tensions of these three ideas. Um, Thank you for that. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, part one of the book contains chapter one. Uh, so, you have three parts in your book. Um, and in this chapter, and it's part of the book, um, you focus on Confucius, who um, I quote you, set the agenda for the subsequent moral political deliberations in Chinese history and, uh, quote, foregrounded the complex relationships between the personal, the familial, and the political domains at the outset of Chinese philosophical reasoning. Uh, so there is absolutely no doubt that Confucius is a foundational and highly influential thinker, not only for early China, but throughout the following centuries and also across vast geographical regions. Um, so as the origin or, or one of the origins of moral political philosophy in China, what were Confucius' intellectual concerns? What was his philosophical legacy also left for other later thinkers? Right. So Confucius looms really, really large uh, in Chinese philosophy, in East Asian philosophy more generally. And it's, you know, I think Whitehead, uh, um, Norfolk Whitehead was the one who famously said that the history of Western philosophy is a series of footnotes to uh, Plato, right? I think it might, it might even be more of a case uh, in terms of Confucius in his relationship to the subsequent um, Chinese and, and in some ways East Asian um sort of moral political philosophy as a series of footnotes to to the kind of vision that's laid out um, uh, in Confucius's vision. So that's 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 an interesting sort of uh, comparison. So the way I I put him, uh, the way I situate him, that he was the one Confucius uh, who lived in the you know mid sixth uh, century to the early decades of the fifth century BC uh, towards the end of what's known as the spring autumn period. Um, so he was the one who planted the seeds for the Chinese moral political philosophy, and I see him, the him meaning the Confucius in the Analects, which would also include many of his his disciples whose message were recorded in the Analects, and I basically take those to be sort of channeling Confucius' vision. So, I mean, there were actually scholarship who would say, who would dispute this and say, well, there are actually different strands and different, it, it's reflective of, of different kinds of lineages uh, of early uh, Confucians, which is a totally fair point. But I wanted to treat the Analects as a text with reasonable conceptual integrity that has shaped the subsequent moral political discourse in Chinese history. So it's really important for my purpose in this book to treat it as uh, the text that has a more or less cogent and coherent moral political vision. So in that in that light, I see him as embrace expressions of both this partialist humaneness and impartialist justice in his effort to just refashion relationship between uh, ideal personhood, ideal family, and ideal polity. So, I so in the book I characterize the the sort of the normative value in his project as what I call humanist come justice, meaning come meaning like combine that humanist and justice, with, meaning that uh, the within his vision uh, there is a continuity and a complementarity 
of humaneness and justice in this, in this vision of a moral political order. So on the humaneness side, uh, we see uh, there are lots of uh, discussions on you know, familial virtue. So for example, famously Analex 1.2, right? This is through uh, one of his uh, disciples, Yuzi, who places the familial virtues of filial piety and brotherly respect or fraternal love as the root of the good or ren, which is a, a really the most important uh, virtue, moral virtues in the Analects uh, by broad consensus. So the idea is that uh, from filial piety and the fraternal love or brotherly respect, one would gradually develop the capacity to extend this care to people more generally. You start out uh, with this care and love within the family, and then you gradually extend that outward towards people you don't know and gradually becomes much, much more encompassing to include all, especially in the case of these sage kings. But what's interesting in that vision is that there's actually a limit to this extension of care to others. So this is the famous uh, story conversation in Analex uh, 1318, a conversation between the Duke of Shu and Confucius. So anybody who uh, studies Analex would know this passage. So the Duke said to Confucius, among my people, there's one we call the upright gong, right? The zhi gong. When his father stole a sheep, he reported him to the authorities. Now Confucius replied, among my people, those who we, we consider upright are different from this. Fathers cover up for their sons, and sons cover up for their fathers. And uprightness is to be found in this. This is translated uh, by uh, Edward Slingerland. Um, so this is here, the, the limit of that extension of care to others, you know, meaning that the family is a really, especially the father in this case, uh, is a really major obstacle, right? So this is the, this is the, a clearly, it's kind of a humane, um, the humanist expression as defined in the book being in, that it's partial. And then, but then there's also a very strong um, sort of justice element in the text. Um, I'll just give one quick example. This is uh, from Analex uh, 15, 24, Zigong, one of uh, Confucius' disciples, asked, is there one word that can be applied throughout one's life? Confucius replies, is that true? Do not do to others what you do not want for yourself. And so this is a very famous um, expression, um, the, the shu, that's often dubbed as the, the, the kind of a negative golden rule, or some people call this the, the silver rule, do not do to others what you do not want for yourself. And this is obviously in contrast with this uh, famous golden rule in the biblical tradition with the positive formulation. But what's interesting here is that shu, translated as reciprocity, the, the, the negative golden rule, is elevated to the really this exalted status of a lifelong guide to a moral life. And some scholars call this the general maxim. Uh, in Confucius' teaching, no other uh, concept is accorded with that kind of status, right? So, and this uh, golden rule has a very strong um, elements of justice being impartial. And that's why um, I, and, and there are lots of other cases in the book that I, that I trace. And this is how I see as the, uh, as the, the vision in Confucius' 
uh, sort of project that he embraces both expressions of humaneness and justice. He was, you know, sort of, you know, try to maintain some sort of continuity um, between the two and sometimes attenuously. But then, you know, when we we see very quickly uh, in the sort of later chapters uh, that uh, continuity and complementarity would really come apart very quickly uh, uh, subsequent to his time. Yeah, thank you. It's it's a really fascinating chapter to read to really set the the ground for the following conversations. Um, So part two of the book now goes into more complex territories and has three chapters, right, that dig into the tensions between humaneness and justice, uh, explored especially by several philosophers from the mid-5th to the 4th century BCE, including uh, philosophers like Mozi, Mencius, Laozi, and early Fajia thinkers. Uh, you call this period the fermentation stage of classical Chinese philosophy. Um, so let's take a look at chapter 2 first. Here, you examine the ideas of Mozi and Mencius, who grappled with the intellectual legacy that Confucius left behind in what you call the great divergence. Uh, so what were these two thinkers diverging from specifically? So as I was just talking about, within um, the Confucius framework, there is this continuum and complementarity uh, and basically fusion between elements of humaneness and elements of justice. And uh, what, I, what I'm trying to argue um, in that chapter, in chapter two, is that this would come apart uh, in Mozi and uh, Mencius. So Mozi, uh, this is somebody who, you know, generally is taken to be uh, in the uh, in in the sort of mid to late fifth century BCE, and his followers, the Moists, um, they launched um, really the most organized effort to challenge Confucius' project. They were probably also the first uh, or the first effort to challenge Confucius' um, project. And what ended up happening, the way I see it, is that they end up formulating really the first articulated ideal of universal justice in Chinese history. And this is the famous teaching of the impartial care. See, the elements of impartiality is very strong in that. On the other hand, Mencius, this is somebody who's generally mostly uh, lived in the uh, 4th century BCE, so this would be later than Mozi. He um, defended Confucius' project um, and by embracing this value of this partialist humanist. And he was actually very strong in critiquing this Moist idea of impartial care as inhumane and as basically inhuman. So the so the we, we see how the humaneness and justice comes apart. This is why I call this the great divergence, you know, the divergence between justice and humaneness in the hands of Mozart and uh, and Mencius would recast this uh, trajectory of later development um, of Chinese philosophy with very major sort of consequences. So let me just say a little bit about Mozi. He is generally believed to come from a lower strata of early Chinese society, likely a craftsman and a self-made thinker, although some scholars actually dispute this. I mean, scholars would, of course, dispute almost every aspect of everything. This is early China is a very, very contested field. Um, 
And he was considered to be the leader of a major uh, religious and social movement um, in the early in the Warren States period and the, uh, challenging the uh, established social and moral norms of basically the arist aristocracy. Um, so what's relevant to the project of the in my book is that they formulated what I consider to be two legs of universal justice, the idea of impartial care and the idea of an objective standards or criteria, right? The impartial care, um, this uh, is a sort of related to the idea of, of an impartial and just heaven. And this is a sort of reflective of the, of the Moist conviction that heaven does not play favors and they should then the most the most followers should emulate heaven in their impartiality and justice and so that's one leg impartial care and objective standards refers to uniform and objective criteria to be used universally applied in order to accomplish the ideal of impartial care so that's impartial impartial care itself is not enough you actually need really clearly formulated standard to be applied across the board in order to accomplish this ideal. So the uh, so what I was arguing in the book is that Mozi and the Moists, they actually, they were the one who took Confucius' teaching of the negative golden rule much, much more seriously than some of the uh, self-professed um, uh, followers of Confucius. And, um, and then they they really pushed the golden rule to its logical conclusion in coming up with the uh, uh, the teaching of impartial care, while Mencius, being self-professed follower of Confucius, actually in his text, we found that the concept of the negative golden rule or the shu basically disappeared. And this, of course, would have very, very important ramifications in terms of the, the sort of the, the vision, the orientation. Uh, all mentions as a philosophical text and the project. Basically, that's what I tr try to characterize. The Mencius project is the other end of this uh, justice humanist spectrum. So uh, if Mozi was more on the uh, justice uh, side and Mencius was very much on the uh, humanist side. And Mencius was, of course, was the main Confucian critic of the Moist in the classical period. And Mencius' influence was so big, that his critique of the Moist basically colored all of the rest of the Chinese understanding and approach to uh, to, a more, to the Moist project. And uh, so, and, and what I basically end up doing is that uh, the, the Mencius there, I, I, I see that there are actually two kinds of Mencius, you know, one is an extensionist Mencius, similar to, you know, to the way that we see in the Analects you know, about, you know, the, the king's pity towards an ox, towards the suffering of an ox. And then Mencius said, if you can, ex, you know, extend that sentiment to your people, this heart, heart mind that cannot bear the suffering of an ox, uh, if you can extend that towards your people, you will be a benevolent king, a benevolent ruler. But then um, the there is another strand of Mencius, uh, which is what I consider to be the more radical one. I call that the uh, sacrificialist. And here, the uh, the there is actually a lot of tension involved between different values, between different desirable goods, 
between life and righteousness, between family values and political values and so forth. And here, the, the tension is much, much more uh, obvious and foregrounded in Confucius, I mean, in Mencius' vision. And uh, the, uh, so, the, so the conclusion of that, um, the discussion about Mencius is that Mencius was not ready to simply explain all of these tensions away. You know, he, he wanted to hold on to all of this, to the familial and to the political, because for him, both define who we are as humans. So the uh, so this what I this is what I take to be this deep tension is really at the heart of his understanding of what it is to be human. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really interesting that um, how these philosophers define justice and humaneness also has to do with how they envision the ideas of heaven, right, and its relationship with the human world. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, in- indeed. Yeah, and, and speaking about heaven, um, chapter three turns our attention to Laozi and the ideas in the Dao De Jing. Uh, so here you argue that Laozi's idea signals yet a naturalist turn in the Chinese philosophical discourse in the late 4th century BCE, which challenged previous assumptions about heaven or this idea of the cosmos and its relationship with the human world. So how did Laozi re-envision heaven and the world? What was his intellectual agenda in doing so? Right. So as I just mentioned, uh, the uh, um, in the book, I treat Dao De Jing and the Zhuangzi separately. I do not group them as the you know Taoists because that's being problematized uh, by the sinological discourse. I think that's actually a very good critique of of lumping them together at this stage. Um, so for me, the really the significance of the Dao De Jing in early Chinese philosophy was its really radical transformation of heaven from the one that cared about and was really very much involved in human affairs, as we see in in Mozi's heaven and even in Confucius' heaven, and in some sense in Mencius' heaven, even though Mencius' heaven becomes uh, the whole human hold on to heaven, it becomes more uh, tenuous. And and, uh, even the Mencius will complain about that heaven is really, you know, sort of deserting us almost, uh, that it's that why he hasn't given us a sage king for so long. But in any case, so so it was the uh, there was a radical transformation of heaven from the one early in Warren State's period that cared about and, and evolved in human affairs to the one that's fundamentally different to the human concerns. Right? That's a very important um, development. And Johnson, you know, and, and Lao Tzu famously claimed that the Tian Di Bu Ren, you know, so the heaven and earth are inhumane. Right. So it basically rejects this uh, this central notion of Ren, you know, variously translates humaneness or benevolence and, and so forth. So that that's now completely just uh, out of the window. Uh, so he the, that I take that to signal a, uh, a really dramatic shift in the philosophical discourse during the fourth century uh, BC period. And, the, I, and I call this the naturalist term because the recent excavated uh, text also support that there is, uh, Lao Tzu was not a text alone advocating this kind of uh, sort of naturalist term. There are other texts that uh, also register similar kinds of orientation that they take the cosmos to be much more naturalist rather than anthropocentric, right, or anthropomorphic. And this is a uh, a, a very important development, intellectual development uh, during this the mid uh, Warren States period. Um, the uh, 
so when he was doing that, then that would result in a, basically a realignment of the values that was registered, that was debated during this period. Because it, it, prior to this, all of these discussions about these different values was couched and grounded in this heaven that cares about uh, human well-being. But now was this heaven that doesn't really care anymore. And it doesn't, it, it operates on its own. It's almost like nature in some sense. Um, and then what do you do with these values that was in many ways derived from modeling the way heavens, heaven is always supposed to be, always taken to be. So this will lead to a lot of rethinking about um, sort of the way of heaven and how should the humans, you know, how should the humans respond to the kind of the new heaven, to the new worldview, to the new kind of cosmology. And what I think happened is that uh, the, the idea of justice or impartiality in the Moist vision becomes also naturalized because he could no longer rely on the kind of impartial heaven to enforce this, but rather becomes that the heaven um, becomes simply a, a kind of a natural happening and uh, and and the and for Laozi, that's actually a better way to embrace the kind of justice. But this vision of justice is very different from the justice that's elaborated in the Moist vision, because the Moist vision that require a very sort of clearly articulated standard to be enforced, um, and uh, the it was much more heavy-handed. It can have a very you know problematic you know, implications and it's much more interventionist and, and superimposition, superimposing. Whereas in the uh, in the Laozi's vision, in the Tao Te Ching, that this heaven is much more accommodating. And and even though Laozi still use these you know these words like the gong, you know, heaven is uh, and the and the and the king, the sage king is uh, is just and is accommodating. And it might not play favors, but then it's always on the side of the good people, on the side of the good. And so that's that's um, this is a the way I, I interpret that is that the the Laozi advocates that humans we're only suited for smaller community, and we are not really suited for these large political entities, and which was of course uh, the the uh, the at the time. The, the mid to late Warren States period, then the, the Chinese society is really, you know, sort of, you know, galloping into a larger and larger political entities. And Laozi is clearly against that kind of, uh, that kind of direction. And eventually it's, um, you know, it's the, uh, the, that vision really, you know, didn't work out. But then what's interesting, what's really fascinating about Laozi's contribution is not so much that, you know, the, uh, uh, it didn't work out, the Chinese history didn't work out the way Lao Tzu advocated, but rather in the way that, especially, I'll give you one example, especially the Fajia thinkers, which we'll talk about in the next chapter, um, uses this idea of the heaven, especially Shen Dao, this is a, one of the early uh, Fajia thinkers and legalist thinkers, um, that would map, advocate the kind of social political engineering of a state institution the state apparatus, and to map that into, onto heaven such that the state can function like the heaven, 
right, can be engineered such that it could function like the heaven. So this is a really, really revolutionary development in, in the sense that it's now the idea of the, of the state apparatus is behaving like heaven-like. So this almost emergence between heaven and the state. But what's ironic, obviously, is that the state is humanly engineered and heaven is, you know, natural and spontaneous. But then the the the, the way that the, the heaven developed becomes much, much more important in really re uh, sort of setting the boundaries and, and the parameters of how the moral political philosophy would develop. Yeah, thank you. Before I, I read your book, I never connected Lao Tzu's idea of the Tao and the and the universe with Fajia thinkers, but you've really made that connection clear and fascinating uh, in the book. So I really find that to be super interesting. So speaking of thank you. yeah, speaking of the Fajia thinkers, uh, in chapter four, the following chapter, you discuss the philosophical discourses um, of these early legalist um, thinkers, namely Shen Buhai, Shang Yang, and Shen Dao, right? mostly dated from the 5th to the 3rd uh, century BCE. Um, and as the name implies, right, we see these thinkers advocating a political philosophy based on impartiality through law, like you said. Um, you argue that with these thinkers, Chinese political philosophy took a decidedly bureaucratic term, like you previously kind of sort of mentioned briefly, mapping kind of human bureaucracy onto the heavens. Uh, so tell us more about this. How and why did the Fajia philosophers come to value impartial justice instead of humaneness? Going to the other side of the spectrum, uh, what are the roles of the state now and bureaucracy in this new kind of envisioning of the cosmos? Right. So one of the main objectives, I think, in, in, the, in the story that my book is retelling about early uh, Chinese philosophy is precisely to bring Fajia thinkers into the fold of uh, mainstream uh, China, early Chinese moral political philosophy instead of leaving them out of the scholarly discourse because the scholarly study of Fajia thinkers is really, really uh, sort of... Uh, sort of inadequate. Um, and I, I wanted to uh, really to highlight that really the Fajia, they're not fringes of early Chinese philosophy. They're actually at the center of this discourse. So the Fajia is often translated as uh, legalist. I mean, I, I decided to use the Fajia, the Chinese transliteration, rather than the, the standard uh, or widely accepted um, English translation of legalist. It has to do with the, the word fa. I mean, it's uh, the, the Chinese word fa uh, means much more than uh, the English word law would imply. So that's why I decided to leave the, the, the Chinese uh, term, even though sometimes even people would say, well, to call them the Fajia thinkers would also be anachronistic, which is true, uh, historically speaking. But then there is something uh, really unifying about these thinkers in the way that they think about sort of the uh, the really sweet, generous nature of political power, right, and the irreducibility of um, of of the political power to moral virtues, and let's say the Confucians it tends to sort of think about uh, moral political philosophies, think about the the power should be, uh, it, you know, 
derivative of the uh, of moral virtues of the uh, agent of the state, especially the, the sage kings. But the Kafaja thinkers were much much more clear eyed about the sort of a the the sort of the unique aspect of political power and institutional power, and that is not reducible to any discussions about their personal virtues, moral virtues, and that. And I think that's a really important uh, aspect, and I think it's a very sort of uh, perceptive aspect of the Fajr thinkers. And so, again, they're usually not taken to be part of the uh, early Chinese intellectual landscape and treated as anomaly, but uh, I wanted to sort of correct that uh, in some sense. So it's actually, this is actually, there's actually a very interesting story about why they should be treated as part of the, uh, the story, uh, the mainstream moral political story. This is a, about the story uh, story about Shangyang in Sima Qian Shi Ji, right? This is, so Shangyang was a, a counselor to Prince Zhuo in the state of Wei. Um, and then this prince, Zhuo, recognized Shangyang's really his, you know, immense talent. So he wanted to recommend uh, Shangyang to the king of Wei. But then um, he he fell ill be- before he was able to recommend him. So when the king came to visit the prince, and the prince really strongly recommended Shangyang to the king. Um, and uh, But then the king wasn't impressed and wasn't interested. So the, so the, the prince when he realized, okay, the king was not interested. So he said, okay, the king, you either use him or you have him killed. Otherwise, if somebody else got hold of him, hired him, um, and, and that's going to be very bad for, the, for your kingdom. Um, the, uh, but what's interesting is that then the, then the prince Stroll immediately summoned Shangyang and to tell him what he told the king. And, and he asked Shangyang to leave the state of Wei as soon as possible, right, in order to save his life. Um, so that, but the king didn't, you know, heed the, uh, the prince's advice uh, to hire or kill him. And, and Shangyang didn't really believe that the, the king would do anything like that either, because, you know, uh, he just, so nobody really took um, the, the prince Zuo's uh, sort of suggestion uh, seriously. Um, What's interesting about the story is that it perfectly captures this uh, this tension between this humaneness, the justice, that the different loyalty, one towards the state and one towards uh, your friends, you know, partial towards your friend, and the other is much more that to the benefits of the state and what's really, so that's a really, so that's a very interesting story about the uh, these Fajia thinkers and, and Shangyang being, of course, uh, one of the most uh, important ones. Uh, the uh, so this chapter, it, you know, it, it talks about these these thinkers, and especially against the background of these increasing concentration of power in the state, in the monarchy, and uh, and this bureaucratization of the state during the mid warring states period. Um, the uh, and my argument is that in the hands of these early Fajia thinkers, the uh, the classical Chinese political philosophy took a very decidedly bureaucratic term, um, which means that now the institution of the state is seen as a domain that has its own operating principles, irreducible to others, it's sweet generous. Um, and they embrace the value of impartiality, which was uh, first formulated and defended by the Maoist, uh, and uh, in some ways reformulated by the Laoists, even though Laoists advocate a more localized version and let the universal be taken care of by heaven without specifying a mechanism for that, because any sort of specification for Laozi would in, 
involve uh, sort of heavy handedness and, and superimposition from, you know, top down kind of approach. And, and Lao Tzu just doesn't like that. Um, but in, in this case, the, these Fajia thinkers, of course, they would take the, the opposite direction. And the, uh, so they would reformulate the idea of justice in especially the element of uh, impartiality and see that as the most important institutional virtue. And it was really ruthlessly instituted in the way that state bureaucracy is uh, designed and uh, is uh, sort of enforced. Um, and then if people violate it, it was really ruthlessly executed. Um, and then, then people would, would abide and then somehow that would really make it work. And this is also reflected in the story of Shangyang when the, uh, the, uh, the heir to the, to the throne of Qin uh, violated the, the rule. Then Shangyang really uh, sort of heavily punished the heir's um, mentors. And so then after that, um, everybody <laughs> abide by the rule. And, you know, so all, any sort of resistance uh, was uh, sort of crushed. Um, and what's important, you know, what I think to be important is that these thinkers, these really important Fajia thinkers, um, they have been really villainized in Chinese you know, intellectual history. I and mean, some of these villainization is, you know, deserve, they deserve it because they, you know, there is a very brutal element uh, in the uh, in the way that the Fajia thinkers, you know, sort of formulate their theories and the, the, the kind of you know, brutality to it. But then there's also the element that the Fajia thinkers actually took the dynamics, the rule of the political power much, much more seriously um, than, let's say, the Confucians. Um, and they and they sort of and this I think this really needs to be taken seriously. And instead of just being you know easily dismissed as the way they they have been uh, in Chinese history, um, so the the, this you know the uh, this is why this is one of the reasons that they favor impartialist or impersonalist justice against partialist humaneness because you know the the the, uh, the normative value in their philosophical uh, reasoning partial partialism if they were to advocate partialism that would necessarily privilege those who are close to the adjudicating agents of the state Right, and it would necessarily disadvantage those who are distant, or you know, the the socially and politically disadvantaged. And I think that's a really valid point. Uh, so it's uh, you know, I, I think that's something that needs to be taken much much more seriously. Um, I think that's the that's and another aspect. I think I'll just before I uh, just go on. It's the uh, the Fajia. I think they also formulate. I think this idea of this professional. Uh, virtues, it's, it's and which is dependent on the state, and that I think is a really important development in Chinese moral political thinking. That you know, this is against the, the Confucians. You know, that would very much advocate that the gentleman is all you know is the one that uh, develop all rounded kind of uh, virtues and, and capabilities. But for Fajia thinkers, that's crazy. I mean, it's like it's not it's not possible for one person to know it all and to 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 do all of this. It's important to be humble and to know your limit and to follow the rule and to you know to to do these things uh, which I think again is an important development by the Fajia thinkers. 
Yeah, thank you. It's, I, I agree with you that the Fajia thinkers really deserve a lot more scholarly attention. They've got really interesting kind of projects going on. Uh, but as a quick, quick kind of follow-up question, what determines uh, what rules must be followed in, in the Fajia traditions? I think that's a really good question. So the 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 uh, sort of Fajia thinkers, one of one of the the weakness of Fajia thinkers is that there hasn't been a lot of discussion about legitimacy or political power, right? You know, the, the, the kind of the, the kind of core values that that is you know sort of uh, uh, talked about by these other by the Moads by the Confucians. But the way I see it is that because they were really uh, sort of not questioning the kind of values uh, that was um, discussed uh, and advocated by the uh, by the Moist, for example, because they were actually deeply influenced by um, by the the Moist. So for the Moist, the idea is that you know the uh, the it's important for to have a strong state. To have strong population, right? Uh, increasing of wealth, all of these are important values. And for the Fajia thinkers, they basically put that kind of vision, you know, and into to operationalize that kind of vision, so that it would. So the uh, the the slogan is to um, is to enrich the state uh, and to and to empower the. Uh, you know the the military to to build strengthen the military and that was the sort of the immediate slogan of that but then the the normative dimension of that is is to institute the kind of impartialist and impersonal kind of roles such that the the state can be you know sort of empowered and strengthened and so forth so in other words the you know the they would they would not advocate the kind of uh, ad hoc arbitrary exercise of power they actually advocate that the power needs to be much, much more constrained. And the whoever exec, whoever exercised power on behalf of the state needs to be very, very detailed, you know, circumscribed. And, and they can they do not have a free range, you know, to exercise exercise their power. Otherwise it can be very easily abused. Yeah, thank you for explaining that. It's uh, it's it's definitely something that we can talk about more. We'll return back to the Fajia thinkers um, in Chapter 7 in a while. But before that, um, Part 3 of the book takes us towards the end of this classical period of, of Baijia Zhengming, of early Chinese history, and looks at the philosophers uh, Zhuangzi, uh, Xunzi, and Han Feizi, who each had very different formulations about the cosmic and also the human worlds through their engagement with these three ideas, right? Humanness, justice, and uh, personal freedom. Uh, you remind us in the book that with the appearance of Zhuangzi and the Zhuangists, we witnessed the emergence of a new concept that had not been discussed by previous generations of Chinese philosophers, namely personal freedom. Uh, so let's talk about him a little bit. In chapter five, you point out that while most of the classical Chinese philosophers lined up differently on the spectrum of the debate, um, you know, on humanist versus justice, as we have discussed previously, uh, Zhuangzi and his followers um, and their idea of personal freedom was actually an outlier on this intellectual landscape, right? So, what was the strongest view of the world and humans' place in it, and and how did they engage with this, you know, humaneness versus justice debate that had been going on? Right. So, 
Zhuangzi is really close to my heart, right? This was written, I mentioned at the very beginning that those, I, originally I was going to do a project, a book just on the Zhuangzi, right? And so the, the, the rest of the book was in some ways motivated to account for the vision that Zhuangzi ridiculed and critiqued. So, so, um, so Zhuangzi is it really, it's something that's really uh, dear to my heart. Um, and he was, Anybody who who read Zhuangzi, anybody who knows anything about uh, Chinese philosophy, just they just cannot help but be impressed by the Zhuangzi. It's almost everybody's favorite philosopher. I mean, it's you know the, anybody who who you know who read and had friends who don't know much about Chinese philosophy, they always would cite Zhuangzi as one of their you know major inspirations. And so, um, so he. He was simply an extraordinary figure in Chinese history, right? You know, it, the way I see it, that he has a very fierce, he's a fierce advocate for personal freedom, which made him a really a singular outlier in the uh, moral political landscape in early in in early China, and sort of because most others were debating on humanism and justice, as you mentioned, um, and the uh, the Zhuangz was really not interested in that. In fact, he sort of lumped the Confucians and the Moors together as usual more, and he doesn't really differentiate you know them. He was you know he was very keen. Then their kind of debate. It's kind of like uh do you do you you know like the the uh, the monkeys? Do you, should you give them three um. Uh, three bananas in the morning, four in the evening, or four bananas in the morning, in morning and three in the evening. He sort of characterized the, or characterized the uh, the moist, you know, the Confucian debate, debating in those terms. So he he just wasn't into into that. So he was rather he just rather want to be a lo- left alone. Right to enjoy the company of like-minded friends, and so, uh, in other words, so, so friendship is actually huge in you know in drawn in the drawn's vision, and so if Confucians see family as the paradigm, you know of political thinking, right? It's you know whatever is cultivated within the uh, the familial domain can then hopefully be reappropriated and and and. and Within the broader political context, for Zhuangzi, it's the friendship that's uh, within which that we are equal to each other, and that is a much more important sort of framework to understand the sort of the political uh, dimensions in the Zhuangzi's vision. So he attempts to offer a really an alternative for framework that foregrounded personal freedom, and he actually valued pluralism. Which uh, sort of, but then the way I see it is that that those kind of really precious visions were severely compromised by the drawingist aversion to a more active engagement with the state. This is where I, I sort of I, I I I'm feeling sort of um in some in some sense really torn. That on the one hand, you know you, you know the drawingist has all the great values, but on the other hand. Um, they they were they were just a little little too hostile to the to the state, or at least to, they didn't really want to be bothered by this these kind of political engagement because they thought it was just very futile. It was not particularly productive. Uh, so and then that kind of attitude towards the state and in the way that Johnson formulated the ideal personal freedom within the context of that aversion to the state becomes very influential uh, in Chinese uh, sort of moral political philosophy uh, in, in the sense that, you know, conceptions of personal freedom uh, 
becomes very sort of um, limited in terms of its impact on the way that the that the that the Chinese um, political institution is engineered. Right, that wasn't really factored in, into that. But when people think about um, Chinese philosophy or culture, um, people don't usually think about freedom, you know, personal freedom. That's you know. Um, but then you know, it turns out that Zhuangzi is actually China has a a very long tradition about personal freedom, and and Zhuangzi is the sort of the the probably the most famous uh, representative of that voice. Um, that's the that's that's the case I'm I'm trying to make. Um, there was a, a really a famous story um, in the Johnson. Probably everybody heard this is the the fable of the frog and the whale. Uh, it's about the conversation between you know a frog and a whale and a sea turtle and uh, right you know so of course the it's about the limited world of the of the whale for the frog versus the limitless world of the sea for the turtle. So and that I think is the one that really influenced the uh, the the sort of the, the Chinese philosophical reasoning as sort of one of the foundational trope for philosophical reasoning in the way that you know the sort of Plato's Republic in the you know the allegory of cave in Plato's Republic has shaped the the Western understanding of nature of knowledge, truths, reality, ethics, and politics, and sort of so that that's that's a really interesting sort of understanding, and and so the for the the strongest vision, this idea of this limitness, right? This this um, this something that's so capacious, that's really the signature for their vision of what is free. That it's not limited by anything. That it's you know it's wandering into the infinite. That's not that's outside the boundaries of any kinds of limitations. And this is uh, the the sort of paradigmatic case. Of uh, of the kind of um, sort of carefree wandering, of the kind of freedom, um, expansive sense of freedom that we see very clearly celebrated in the in the Zhuangzi. So that's one kinds of freedom, meaning that this limitness that's outside the kind of the bounds. But then there's also another kinds of um, of freedom that's much more subtle uh, in the Zhuangzi, and uh, <clears throat> this is about navigation. Um, in, within the world, amidst of all of the restraints and limitations, and we see this very clearly in the story, in the famous story of the butcher, Cook Dean, right, in the way that he was trying to navigate the body, the complex body of an ox in trying to, you know, butch, in, in trying to untangle the, uh, the body of an ox without hacking his way through. Um, so that's the body of the ox is clearly a symbol uh, for the complexity of the world that is uh, constituted and regulated by these complex rituals. So if you hack your way through, you will be injured and, and even be dead. But the, uh, the, for the strongest sort of uh, cultivated person, that this butcher who has these very fine-tuned senses and, and who could actually discern all of these invisible you know, paths in which he would not run into any kinds of resistance inside the body of the ox uh, when he was untangled. So it's almost as though the he could find these secret paths that would you know that would enable him to enjoy the kind of freedom within this complex entanglement of the life world. And so that's what I see to be these two uh, visions of personal freedom. One is this expansive, very large, limitless, sort of, you know, ocean, you know, 
for the sea turtle. The other is this much more constrained, but it's much more, but much more subtle. But it's also very exquisitely sort of uh, portrayed in the text. Um, that, but but that that's a that you know. So the the second kind, meaning the one that's navigating within the bounds of the life world within these uh, complex entanglement of various kinds of relationality, various kinds of relationships is the one that I think holds a lot of promise uh, in expanding a strongest uh, vision of personal freedom within society and or within the state. Yeah, thank you. Really fascinating. Jones is definitely one of the most kind of uh, interesting thinkers. Students always love uh, reading his writing. And I really love that banana analogy that he had. <laughs> right. It makes a lot of sense. If we can borrow that banana analogy further to talk about Xunzi, right, who is the, uh, the topic of chapter six, perhaps he's saying something like, please correct me, I'm wrong. Um, you know, using bananas in rituals right, to establish certain kind of means. So ritual is quite central here in the Shunis idea. Um, here in this chapter, you write, quote, um, if the Zhuangis ideal of personal freedom was a rebellion against ritual, the kind of ritual tradition that the Confucians said, for example, the Shunis ideal was the exact opposite, uh, unquote. Um, so please unpack this for us a little bit. What does Xunzi mean by ritual? And how would ritual be uh, both an effective means of moral cultivation for him and the ideal way of political governance? Right. So Xunzi is very interesting. He, you know, his vision, as I said, it's exactly the opposite of Zhuangzi. Zhuangzi is this rebellion against this ritually you know, sort of constituted life world. He just wants to be left alone. He wants nothing to do with with this in, with this various kinds of social entanglement and various kinds of constraints that the the ritual embodies, right? You know, and he was very much rebellious against this uh, kinds of vision. And Xunzi is is the one that that was a fierce advocate and defender of this ritual, what I call the ritual cosmology, that. What um, and he wanted to sort of find ways to uh, revitalize this increasingly discredited ritual system, and the sort of within Confucius' vision, of course, we know that you know he was the one. Confucius was a admirer of the Zhou ritual, even though you know scholars debate about you know what exactly he had in mind when he was talking about these uh, these glor- glorious uh, Zhou rituals. Um, so Xunzi wants to find ways to. Uh, revitalize this uh, very uh, sort of in the way that he portrayed it was uh, sort of uh, uh, sort of invented by sage kings and and accumulated through generations of wisdom and and that's where the effectiveness of the uh, of the rule and that can be uh, both accommodating the human conditions in its in its various sort of capacity and complexity that's the most effective way of governing of regulating the the otherwise chaotic human condition, right? So that for him, for Xunzi, uh, ritual is really uh, sort of the the you know the the one that can save the world from the kind of chaos, increasingly sort of violent chaos uh, during the uh, the third century BCE. This is right before the uh, uh, the uh, the end of the Warren States period. <clears throat> so, what's really important for 
Xunzi is precisely the、uh, the kind of cosmology that Laozi or the Tao Te Ching、uh, sort of championed this very naturalist understanding of heaven、um, that this heaven is no longer concerned about sort of human well-being or human flourishing because you know in this famous treatise on on heaven in the Xunzi Xunzi is basically saying well you know whatever happens in the human realm heaven is going to go on on its own it's you know whether there's you know there's misery suffering in the world there's you know the, the heaven is the way heaven is so so now it's so it's just pointless to to really look. Uh, at heaven for these kinds of you know sort of guidance. Rather, what what we should do, what humans should do, is to have the kind of system for him, the ritual system, that would take advantage of what heaven and earth, in this case, has to offer in terms of materials, in terms of what can, what's on offer, and then it's up to us humans. To really take advantage of this, in order to restructure the human society such that we can have a more flourishing and fulfilling moral and material life, right? And for so he for him, that's really the the sort of the、uh, the the saving grace、uh, in the the traditional、uh, understanding of heaven. I mean, of ritual and. I think what's what's interesting is that his philosophy actually exhibits a very strong spirit of defiance against this naturalist and in, indifferent heaven, right?、Um, so he was the one who actually elevated the human effort in the formation of a、uh, flourishing human society. So he wasn't he wasn't blaming anybody. He would just say, "It's us. It's really up to us humans." And this is this is a really interesting point、um, about sort of the、uh, the valorization of human effort、um, or deliberate effort. The the Chinese term "wei." So this is you know usually it's translated as in other contexts translated as fake or fraud or you know、uh, pretense. But in in all other texts, this term is used very negatively. Because whatever you know, it's because that's unnatural and that's fake, that's pretension and hypocritical. But Xunzi is the one who celebrates. He said, "Well, that's what makes us human, right? That's you know, that's what we shouldn't just give up on those capacities. That's precisely what makes us human. It's not these sort of natural、uh, sort of inclination that Mencius really celebrates about these benevolent, you know, these kind of、uh, um, benign." Uh, moral inclinations. No, that's not. That's not a good enough guidance. It's precisely. It's the human intellect. It's our human ability to differentiate, and to you know, these are what save humans from a、uh, sort of a、uh, more and more falling into these sort of more and more、uh, chaotic situation. And so he elevates the sage kings as the co-creator of order. In the human world, in collaboration with heaven and earth, and we we see in him in Xunzi that the role of the sage can become so glorified, and they become the sort of these have these cosmic, you know, dimensions, you know, right? It's you know they are so glorified, and that's what I call them the sort of the, I call that kind of glorification the cult of sage king in the Xunzi, and so that's again another interesting development. And and we also see a very interesting、uh, incorporation of Maoist vision 
in Xunzi's uh, conceptualization of a moral political order and the the element of impartiality and um, meritocracy um, is now fully embraced by Xunzi, which is you know kind of a very interesting one. So now the idea of Jian um, is now embraced by Xunzi. Where it was so severely critiqued by Mencius. Yeah, it's fascinating, like human agency and the celebration of human effort and and achievements, right? Like the ones uh, accomplished by the sage kings. It's a really kind of prominent characteristic here. Yeah, indeed, and that that's really really fascinating. That in the way that he celebrates, almost the you know the under other contexts, it's like this is unnatural, and he will be like, great. <laughs> <laughs> I like the celebration of way. It's uh, yeah. very innovative. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And um, going back to the Fajia thinkers a little bit, uh, Chapter Seven turns the spotlight to Han Feizi, um, a Fajia thinker standing at the very end of the Warring States period, uh, a very kind of violent and uh, era right before the unification of China under Qin and Qin Shi Huang. Uh, you remind us in this chapter that Han Feizi, quote, perfected the earlier Fajia model of a strong state with a well-regulated bureaucracy, unquote. Uh, so what was his vision for the Fajia project now? And how are his sort of philosophical formulations compared to the earlier Fajia thinkers like Shen Buhai, Shang Yang, and Chen Dao? Right. So the uh, chapter seven, which is the last chapter before the conclusion, really uh, focuses on this last Fajia thinker, Han Feizi, who uh, was living in, at the very end of the Warring States period, who was actually uh, sort of uh, prosecuted by the by the uh, the the emperor who would eventually you know, unify China, or in the hands of his fellow uh, sort of classmates under Xunzi. Anyway, that was there. Are lots of funny story about Han Feizi. Um, so. And he, he, it's actually important to see him as this grand synthesizer of many aspects of all Chinese moral political um, sort of philosophy. And, it's, and, and this, I, I want to emphasize this point because he was, again, in, in the middle of all of this. And he, in, in his grand synthesis, you can basically see everybody in the early Chinese moral political philosophy, right? So it's it's you know it's it's interesting to see if we see him as the conclusion of the early Chinese philosophical deliberation, and that will almost give us a different you know sort of sense of how Chinese early Chinese philosophy concluded and going forward. And if we see Xunzi, the one we just you know discussed, which was the the last major Confucian thinker in early China, if we see if we see Xunzi as the concluder of the classical period, that, that gives you yet and different kinds of possibility. And Zhuangzi, the one that we that we discussed previously, was the other possible conclusion of the classical period. And if for some reason his vision that he laid out for personal freedom and the and the sort of the futility of that vision and how that played out in subsequent Chinese moral, political, and institutional history. And so that's why I sort of situate these three as suggesting three possibilities uh, in, in suggesting further a trajectory um, beyond the, uh, the early Chinese, uh, early China period. All right. So the, uh, so his, I sort of characterize 
him as very systematic. I mean, he was the one who takes on the Confucian project very head on. I mean, in the Confucian, sort of this normative Confucian extensionist model that you, you cultivate personal virtues, and then you, you become really good at managing your family affairs, put everything in order within the family. We know how, dark, dark, how challenging that can be. And then you then uh, manage the state uh, very well, put it, or, put it in, in, in proper order, and then eventually you bring peace to all under heaven. So that this is a very sort of paradigmatic Confucian vision of moral political philosophy. Start with moral cultivation, you gradually expand that to encompassing all under heaven. Han Fei's basically torns apart every aspect of this. You know, he is just saying, no, 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 no. Sort of there's there's no transferability from any of these domains. So that's, you know, th there's deep tension between the personal and the familial and the familial and the political and between the personal and the political. There's, so so the, there's no, you cannot just go assume that these domains, they somehow all harmoniously work together. No, they actually, they're deep, they're in deep conflict. Right. And, and, and he provides so many cases where that is indeed problematic. So, so instead of simply assume or accept that this is the way that political philosophy should operate, he said, no, that actually is not the case at all. So that's how he just roundly rejects the, uh, this Confucian normative political, moral political paradigm. And he so, like the early uh, Fajia thinkers, that he sought a model that will provide the, the kind of intellectual foundation for this impersonal and uniform bureaucratic machinery, which is capable of dispensing reward and punishment automatically with as little interference as possible from the ruler, right? Or even from these other officials that the ruler appointed. It's, you know, it's like a it's like an AI machine, if there were such a thing. It is that it's just you know automatically grants these uh, these kind of reward and punishment, and uh, without as little interference as possible. Because if you allow interference, introduce interference, then you know then it's very very easy to be corrupted. That the system, right? So so Han Fei is very keenly aware of uh, allowing these kind of uh, discretion or disallowing the discretion and the, what that would do towards you know to the stability and uh, of the system of the political uh, system that was carefully engineered um and so but then of course um i i, I talked about this in the book that is you know he uh, he was not really able to solve this core very central tension between the monarch and monarchy because how are you going to control the mon the monarch you know the king which is, you know, the one that's supposed to, to really beyond uh, any any sort of reach of any of the machine. Even though he advocates that the king should be Wu Wei, right? Should do as little as possible, should interfere as little as possible, and the, the king should be very mindful of the kind of uh, the kind of mechanism, the kind of um, manipulation by his close advisors, by his by his families, and by his sons, by his concubines, and and you know under. The the Han Feitz's vision, you know, the, a ruler is the most miserable human human being, right? It's you know, you know, what 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 does a ruler even live for? Because it's their traps everywhere, and and so it's you know it's I think it's that he I think he didn't really take 
a ruler's humanity really into consideration. So that's you know, so that that I think to be a really important one. And and of course, there's if the if the ruler really uh, goes crazy, uh, really there is no mechanism to to really offset that, to balance that. Um, so I think that's a really key uh, weakness in the Faja, I think in the sort of project in general and in Han Feizi uh, in particular. But of course, Han Feizi was aware of this. I mean, like other Fajia thinkers, he knew that these monarchs, these rulers, that they're not dealing with sage kings. And precisely because they're not sage kings, that's why he said we needed to, to devise the system so carefully that it can sustain these kind of crazy rulers. That it, because he assumes that most rulers are not just tyrannical or sage kings. Most rulers are just mediocre. And we should design a system political system just for those mediocre rulers. And, and that would just largely leave the political machine operates on its own without active, you know, sort of interference, either by a sage king or a, by a tyrant most of the time. So he criticized the Confucian and say, well, you guys hand all of your hope on a sage king and how often does that happen? And what about those who, you know, what about the, the rest of the time when we don't have a sage king? And so I think that's what's really uh, sort of interesting and striking about uh, the Han Feizi and the Fajia project. Thank you. Yeah, really, really fascinating stuff. And uh, more interestingly, the concluding chapter of your book um, now goes into a really fascinating analysis of Jones's idea of personal freedom against uh, a Western philosopher, Isaiah Berlin's ideas of negative and positive freedom. Um, I find this part of this cultural, cultural, um, cross-cultural philosophical engagement really, really riveting here. Uh, so where does Jones's ideas of personal freedom stand in Berlin's system of political freedom? Right. So I think it's, you know, the one of the things that I wanted to do in the conclusion is to bring the discussion to more contemporary period, right? I wanted to um, bring the uh, all of this discussion bring to bear to a more contemporary uh, audience in a contemporary kind of debates, especially pertaining to the discussion of personal freedom or political freedom. Um, and because Isaiah Berlin is one of the really the leading voice um, in that de- contemporary debate, especially in his discussion of the positive and negative uh, liberty or positive negative freedom in his famous essay. Um, and, I, and I find this you know, engagement with Zhuangzi very, very helpful. It, it ends up actually reshaping my appreciation of the Zhuangist vision of personal freedom. A lot of my critique of the Zhuangist uh, vision of the personal freedom was the result of this very uh, sort of I thought to be, you know, this kind of, you know, deep, uh, deep engagement with Berlin. And Berlin was very critical of the kind of aversion, this kind of uh, sort of, you know, lack of engagement with the state or with politics, that he thought that this uh, person, that the, the, the project of freedom 
actually requires a uh, very active political engagement, and he would be very skeptical to the you know to a kind of a spiritualist kind of um, project that draws another that the Berlin critiques that the Stoic or the the Buddhist you know so, and and I find that to be very interesting in pushing sort of these boundaries what we you know sort of usually celebrate to be the drawnest vision of these personal freedom, be it sort of these more expansive limitness sort of. Uh, a capacious kind of freedom or the much more limited sort of freedom of navigating sort of within the bounds of the ritual, ritually constituted um, sort of life world. Uh, yeah, and, and I find that to be a very rewarding part of the project, Engaging Burden. Um, a really inspiring part of your book is also in the conclusion. And this is where you actually invite your readers to contemplate on, I quote, a path not taken in Chinese history, uh, which involves an innovative synthesis between Zhuangist and Fajia thoughts together. Uh, so in this really kind of you know, innovative and venturesome vision that you have, you propose, um, I quote, a brand new political and intellectual imagination from underexplored traditional sources in the early Chinese philosophical discourses that can provide a powerful alternative to the contemporary discussion on the possibility of liberal democracy in China that has been dominated by various confusion-based speculations. This is actually quite mind-blowing. Uh, so please do tell us more about this strongest Fajia vision of moral political philosophy of, of yours. Uh, what would it entail and look like? And what would be the implications for China in the current moment? Right. Um, so I think it, in Chinese history, you know, it's I, I take it that it's rather tragic that the strongest idea of personal freedom was really marginalized and and or internalized, meaning that it's they turned inward towards the heart mind, towards the inner world, to, in pursuit of freedom, or you know, the it's, it's, it was banished to the the kind of the hermetic space at the margin of the life world. So, so it didn't really exert uh, too much of an impact on the development of a native Chinese formulation and an imagination of political freedom when engaging the state. So if you if you wanted to get away from politics like hermits, um, or if you're frustrated. Uh, in your pursuit of political ambition, so those who were exiled or disillusioned uh, scholar officials, Zhuangzi was your counsel, right? Was your comfort. And other than that, the Zhuangzi was not really a major voice in Chinese um, political discourse. And I and I think this is rather unfortunate because the Zhuangzi, the Zhuangzi vision discussion on um, personal freedom could have been a major voice in the uh, uh, in Chinese moral political uh, debate and discourse. Um, so what's, what I find to be tragic is that the strongest imagination of freedom was not factored into the way the state was conceived of. So in other words, it didn't occur to the strongest that we can, through institutional arrangement, constrain the state's ability to intrude upon people's personal freedom, right? Not even as an imagination. So this really raises a question about, you know, the nature of imagination, how free that really is, right? It's, you know, in some ways, the how really conditioned, you know, that, um, that our 
of imagination actually is. So the uh, the in, so so I was hoping to have this to create a new kinds of imaginaire, a strongest kind of uh, imaginaire uh, that would be more amenable to this idea of protection of our personal freedom, so that the kind of freedom that's available to these cultivated moral, you know, agent, like, you know, this um, very skillful butcher who was able to sort of make available these sort of private spaces as a result of his cultivation, of his training. Instead of that, if we can reimagine a kind of situation when that kind of private spaces can actually be protected and bring out into the open through more robust institutional arrangement in the way that our laws are, are you know, sort of encoded, are, you know, sort of legislated in, in terms of, of our system is, you know, is uh, established as in reimagined. So I just wanted to sort of provide um, a, a possibility where we actually take what I consider to be a commoner's perspective, an ordinary person's perspective. We can't just always appeal to the sages, to the to the most extraordinarily skillful and the most discerning, you know, right? The the you know the the most talented people. And what about the rest of people? What about the rest of us? For not the paragon of anything. We're just natural and normal with natural normal kind of you know apparatus and cognitive ability. What about us? Uh, so I think it's it's this is something. That Zhuangzi, as well as the uh, other early uh, Chinese philosophers, need to take it much more seriously. Meaning that it's to take the perspective of an ordinary person, you know, as full moral agent, especially when engaged in the political discourse. Right, and it's not just that they need to be educated; they need to be, you know, so they need to cultivate. Sure, that's that's fine, but. They also have certain realms within which that they should be able to call their own shots, right? Within they, they should be able to, uh, to be their own masters, you know. And and that's I think that's something that's really important. And and uh, the uh, so what I see uh, to be a potential is that actually the Fajr thinkers were the one that strangely enough, among the classical thinkers, they were the ones who didn't actually. Their, their philosophy is not built upon any sort of promissory notes about transforming human nature or, you know, rather they're just they're sort of directing the human sort of psychology in the way that can be, you know, that takes the human, uh, at least from some perspective, takes the ordinary human's perspective much more sort of seriously and to see that as a, as a possible way to remake the, the state. And, and usually that's been dismissed as, oh, the Fajr thinkers didn't, you know, they, they, they didn't take uh, the human moral agency seriously enough. They, they just thought that uh, humans, you know, just a subject to, you know, to, to punishment and, uh, and they're not up for uh, sort of moral cultivation. I don't think that's fair. I mean, it's, I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's actually important that these Fajr thinkers divide, design their political system based upon sort of not c- certain ideal, but based upon what human beings are as given right i think that is really important um so but you know as for what exactly should happen um in what can happen it historically it didn't happen the the strongest fajia synthesis you know i mean uh, it didn't happen um because the law is you know can be imagined such that uh, the it can 
protect certain basic sort of private space in the way that the polit- political institution is set up. But then, of course, um, it wasn't an accident that the strongest Fajia synthesis didn't happen. So to answer your question, what does that synthesis even look like? Um, I I guess I have to disappoint uh, you somewhat because it's the question I posited, I posited to myself when I was writing the book. And I'm not sure I have really inst- interesting answer yet, but, you know, but stay tuned. I mean, because, you know, I might, I might get something uh, later on because it's something that I keep thinking about. And I'm kind of slow when I think about these things and, and I weigh things. Um, these kind of weighty matters tend to take quite a while, maybe another 15 years, uh, right? So uh, the uh, I wanted to think more about what that looks like, not just in terms of smart, persuasive arguments, because we have plenty of those, but I wanted to see other possibilities when this becomes actually a more live possibility, not not just, you know, sort of a set of, um, you know, arguments, because I I think that's not what's lacking. Yeah, thank you. I I really look forward to that. Um, You know, if you decide to write on this topic more, I'm definitely (laughs) going to look it up and read it. Yeah, I think I think it's such an important topic. And I really appreciate the fact that you highlight in the book, especially in this part of the chapter, um, how much of the early Chinese philosopher um, and their discourses were actually targeted to a specific class and gender of people or to a literate, male-dominated, higher social class, excluding, like you said, ordinary people and also women right, from their projects of moral, personal cultivation and uh, this bureaucratic system. Right, So I really appreciate that. Um, and I have uh, two more questions. <laughs> I know we're, we're really having a, um, a very in-depth conversation now. Um, so this book, it's, it's so much. It's so rich. Um, it also corrects a lot of the common misconceptions of early Chinese philosophical traditions. Right? For example, that it's not always about Confucians, uh, Confucianism. And also, um, Zhuangzi is not just this kind of passive hermit. Um, so how do you think your book could help us change the way we uh, introduce and teach Chinese philosophies in the classroom? Right. So that's a really inter- that's a really important question. So we, how, you know, the, the teaching is always an important component, right, for us as scholars. I think what my book, I hope it, what it does is that it provides a comprehensive roadmap you know, or guide to, about the landscape of early Chinese philosophy. And, and hopefully that would make it easier for people who are relatively new to Chinese philosophy to get a sense of what the overall intellectual landscape, right? And where to, like, where to locate all of the thinkers in that landscape and to, you know, get familiarized with the scholarly discussions on many facets of these texts because sometimes you know, when you really you know if you're not familiar already then if you read the text you know it's it's very easy to get lost about it's like i have no idea where this is coming from and how that's related to others what's really going on in the period so with a more sort of larger broader perspective it's it helps to locate each one of them it's like oh i see this is how why this person or this text is addressing this because it was answering relating to this in this way and and there you go and then you you can just go in those kind of directions and for those who are already familiar with chinese philosophy the scholars of chinese philosophy or east asian philosophy i hope that the book and 
can provide um, new and uh, what my, one of my anonymous reviewers at Oxford said provocative interpretations of leading thinkers and the texts that are uh, attributed to them. So there, you know, there's lots of sort of terminological challenges, definitions, and 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 then the way that that the that that the book keeps trapped of these different kinds of development and the vocabularies, the, you know, and how it's done. So I, I hope this kinds of systematic approach uh, would be helpful for both people who are relatively new and those who are, you know, who are more, in, you know, adept in, you know, more familiar with the uh, scholarly discussion. Yeah, thank you. I, I find some of the terms that you came up with, uh, like the the bureaucratic turn, the naturalist turn, are really really helpful in in mapping out a, a very complex intellectual landscape for us. Thank you. Yes. Um, and and, and lastly, um, one question that I'm kind of curious about, and I think a lot of our listeners might be curious about too, is what surprised you the most in your study of early Chinese philosophies and and their texts. So. I'm actually, I found myself surprised by what, by the fact that I was surprised so frequently when I was, you know, going through the early text, right? I mean, this is a very well studied territory. And I remember some time ago when a colleague was asking me what I was doing, and I said I was doing the early uh, Chinese second, doing a philosophical reading of it. It was like, mm, you know, what, is there anything more to be done you know is there anything new that can be done because it's like so uh, sort of a, a field that's so well plowed um but so you know my my answer would be emphatically yes there's so many places that have surprised me in, in writing this book um and sometimes these surprises are from the reading but sometimes they're surprises that you know sort of uh that's a, delightful surprises that from engagement with materials in in those texts right so for example who knew confucius was um was so subversive in the claim to the knowledge of mandate of heaven right it's you know that's again that's a very curious sort of nobody really talked about that aspect at, at all um so in 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 you know in contrast to this image of this human being you know advocating this obedience you know all of you know traditionalist ritual you know propriety but his claim to no mandate of heaven at the age of 50, that's violation of ritual norm of the highest magnitude, right? So that's that's very surprising. Um, and in terms of Mozi, um, I was so surprised how ubiquitous the Moist ideas actually were in the classical text. I think this is something that's really vastly underappreciated in, you know, in the Fajia thinkers and, and even in um, in Laozi and I situate Lao Tzu as after Mozi, and so that's that's a really uh, important aspect that I that I didn't quite uh, know what you know before, um, and then the mentions that I was really you know sort of struck by the fact that he he was full of tensions, conflicts, and he's not willing and. He just doesn't want to let go of any one of those, and it's it will be much easier almost to, to 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 go in certain directions. But he he wanted to hold on to all of those. This really just tells me that what he considered to be human is actually deeply conflicted one, which was a huge surprise to me. And for Lao Tzu, it's I was really surprised how influ- really historically influential this uh, this text has been because uh, people you know I mean people this is a very well known text the Tao Te Ching. But people actually, it's 
scholars are having a hard time to relocate it historically in terms of where to how to situate it vis-a-vis vis -vis other texts because there's no reference to other names or or, or, or text explicitly at least. So so it's uh, so situating the way that I do in the book, um, I, I think it's it provides an interesting sort of inflection point in the. Uh, in the mid-Warren States period, that in the way that it opens up so many possibilities for the later development. And then so it turns out that that he st stood at a very pivotal point in the, the political development um, in early uh, Chinese uh, sort of intellectual landscape. And the uh, and I was, you know, also struck by how really sophisticated and clear-headed the Fajia thinker really were, you know, in their thinking about, especially you know, about the the origin of human society, the origin of state, very very sophisticated. It's you know, it's uh, way more sophisticated by these other, uh, by these other uh, sort of uh, sort of philosophical deliberations. Even you know, in in compared with um, other uh, traditions in the world, then Fajia thinkers were very um, would you know were very good, and so they were. Uh, I was really impressed. And they were also, uh, I was struck by the fact that how seriously they took uh, the sui generis nature of political power and, and, and just deal with that head on and very clear eyed about, you know, about the, the possibilities. Um, and then the, uh, the, I, you know, drones is being really close to my heart, but then in, in, in the engagement of drones and especially with our Isaiah Berlin, I became uh, increasingly uh, sort of cognizant and aware of its limitation of the kind of personal freedom that's uh, that's sort of that doesn't really have an institutional uh, component of it uh, doesn't have the collective uh, element of it in the drawing vision and I think that to be to, to again that's as a result of this engagement with the text and uh, you know for Xunzi I was really you know shocked how really defiant he was towards the sort of the, the, the givenness of this naturalist heaven and how willing he was to embrace this full implication of a natural heaven that's indifferent largely to the, uh, to the human well-being and to what extent he was willing to embrace the, the, what's rejected by almost all other sort of mainstream moral political philosophers about the nature of the human agency in defiance what's considered to be natural right which very that's 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 again that's very daring and Han Feizi, lastly so he was so perspective and perceptive about the, the kind of power dynamics in our intimate most intimate relationships and you can see how that you know when you put that into the royal family and then how perilous a monarch would really be and and see and I was also surprised to see that even the strongest inference on the perilous nature of human relationality that Zhuangzi lays out very clearly, and that you see this in in Han Feizi. Even though Zhuangzi, we know Zhuangzi and Han Feizi, they they're very very interesting. They're very different political. So there are tons of uh, of surprises. Yeah, this is really refreshing to listen to you talk about these surprises. Um, you know, it reminds you that we really shouldn't take anything for granted, right, in the scholarly study. Indeed. Amen. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Well, uh, Professor Jiang, I think we've taken up a lot of your time, but if I can borrow a couple more minutes from your schedule uh, to ask you one last question. Um, if you can tell us a little bit about some of the current projects 
projects that you're working on? Um, thank you for that. Uh, so I think one of the things that I realized after working on this project and bringing it to a close uh, in 15 years is that I actually don't have an infinite amount of time in my professional life. You know, um, that it really depends on how many years I still have left. And uh, I, I actually wanted to finish several projects that has been going on simultaneously. So I've been working on uh, several other projects. You know, I'm finishing a book manuscript on Chan Buddhist Lin Ji, you know, his philosophy. And I'm also doing another one and tracing the notion of Buddha nature in Chinese intellectual history, not just within the Chinese you know, Buddhist discourse, but situated much more broadly in connecting that to the Neo-Confucian uh, sort of intellectual history, right? You know, And also I was engaged in the, the comparative study of free will and that I, I've written quite a bit, you know, over hundreds of pages on, on, on this as well, because I was uh, struck by the fact that, you know, free will, a, a, a concept that's so prominent in Western philosophy, you don't really find that uh, in these other, you know, traditions that I'm familiar with in China and even in India in some ways, in the way that I read the the tradition. So I was trying to understand why that's the case, you know, so that I ended up studying a lot of Augustine, you know, uh, and, you know, so that that's, that's really, that's really interesting. And, and of course, uh, I'm also working on this uh, possible Zhuangist Fajia and maybe Confucian, new imaginaire of a political system that can utilize uh, Chinese uh, sources and of course, in engagement with Western thinkers to think about uh, sort of uh, the, uh, the what's possible for Chinese institutional development. So, so now the question is, um, which one should I bring to finish uh, the earliest or the quickest? You know, so then I, I just need to choose soon. But I, I'm, I'm working, and there are actually several others that's going on all the time. Uh, and uh, and and it's uh, I, I I just I'm just interested in so many. Uh, things at the same time, and it's um, it's you know, it's it's a really privilege of life to to be able to do these kind of things. Yeah, I mean, through, from your book, I can definitely see that you have a really diverse range of intellectual interests, which is really really inspiring for a for a graduate student like me. And uh, regardless of which project you put out first, you know, I'm excited for all of them. So. You know, um, I'll keep my eye out for for your newest project, and I'm sure our listeners will too. Um, so, thank you so much, Professor Dan, for taking the time and energy to share with us your fascinating research and your passion on the topic of Chinese philosophy. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. It's this is a lot of fun, and it's you know, it's you know, I really appreciate again the opportunity to present my work to the audience, and I appreciate your hard work, you know, in doing all of this preparation for such a long, lengthy book. Thank you, thank you. All right, so until next time, bye bye.